Hi there, listeners. Just a reminder, all co-hosts of the Arbitration Station appear on it in their personal capacities. So please do not attribute statements to or take legal advice from what is said on this informal podcast. Thank you. Hello and welcome to the Arbitration Station. My name is Brian Kodak. I'm here with Sadia Bhatti. Hi, Sadia. Hi, Brian. How are you? I'm good. How are you? We are back for another episode. Uh, yes, very excited about that because a lot of people have gone on vacation, but no, we are still working. <laughs> exactly. We <laughs> are in your ears while you're on the beach. Exactly. Um, before we kick off, I just want to plug, because we are media sponsors, um, for the 20th anniversary conference. It's the iCalp the International Commercial Arbitration Law um, of Stockholm University program. It's their 20th anniversary conference. It's going to be held in Stockholm. Registration is now open. It's uh, the end of August. So the 31st of August to September 1st. Um, I know kids are going back to school at that time, but uh, I'm sure you can make it for a day. They're also doing a lot of side events. Um, SWAN, which is the Swedish Women in Arbitration Association. I've got that acronym wrong. They're holding an event. Uh, Young ITA is holding an event uh, on energy. So there's a lot of side events. They're also hosting brunches and you're going to have a party in a museum. And it's it's going to be an amazing event. And every firm in Sweden is on the sponsoring committee. So I'm sure it's going to be luxe. So sign up there. Um, you can go to the ICAL Alumni Association's webpage, but I'm sure if you just Google ICAL conference uh, 2023, I'm sure it will come up. So register now. Perfect. Looking so forward. are you doing any conferencing? I feel like it's been conference light these days. Yeah, I uh, I came back from conferencing a lot, like a couple of weeks ago, and I think I'm done until September at least. So. <laughs> oh, that's a long, long break there. It's a long a break, of weeks. Yeah, no, I feel like, you know, just taking the summer to break. I mean, there was a, there's a there's a really nice conference also, an East African conference in Zanzibar, which Ooh. is taking place. Yeah, it's taking place end of August. And by all means, guys, if you can go run there, <laughs> I would love I would have loved to go, of course, Um is it a general arbitration conference or it's an arbitration conference? Yes, no. it's an arbitration conference in Africa and it happens every year. And this year it's in Zanzibar. However, I can't make it personally. It just, just doesn't work. The dates doesn't work, which is a shame. But anyways, so that's it. It's just August is a bit sacred, you know, kind yeah, of keep exactly. family and holiday and stuff uh, or, or, or urgent work but not. <laughs> I'm hoping everyone, you know, at this point in time, you're just hoping everyone agrees to like be nice to each other during this time. It's like Christmas. Yeah. Um, you're like exactly. waiting for your emergency arbitration files to come yeah. or something. We, we officially called it like neutralization of summer in the procedural calendar. Don't you do that? Or no, that but I like thing? that. Neutralization de l'été. Yeah. In the procedural <laughs> calendar, we discussed that with we've done that a couple of years. Yeah. I remember in one of the cases last year, opposite counsel called me and he was like, So I am gonna be on my yacht in two weeks. What are you gonna do? <laughs> oh. 
<laughs> and he was like, just to let you know, it's not really cool if you like send a security for whatever cost application right. time. Or I was like, okay. Oh, so no interim applications, but the actual no interim procedural. applications during right, during right, right. summer. It was kind of like a nice understanding, you know, of that. And I was like, I can try to convince my client, but you know. But if someone's selling off their shares, I need to get an interim application. I know. Or I was like, you have space on your yacht for one more person. Yeah, we'll have the hearing <laughs> on your yacht. Oh, I would love that. <laughs> Maybe we can do that when we're tribunal chairs. We can. Oh my gosh, but... that would be good. All right, I'm Why sure. Why not? Maybe some people do it. You know what, Brian? Maybe some people actually do that. Who knows? It you sounds know? like an episode of The Good Wife where they, <laughs> where they had they cast arbitration on a running track just to make sure you knew it was sports. Oh no, that's hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> um, we talked about that on a previous episode. I thought it was hilarious. Oh, that is funny. So, so what are we talking about this today, topic? today we have a uh, annulment decision that was just recently um, issued on the 21st of July, 2023. Mm -hmm. um, we will. It's an annulment of an exit case between um, Edmund Kujan and RN Capital versus Ar Armenia. Um, and there, it deals with the issues of dual nationality, um, oh. which we're going to talk about, which I thought we could broaden and in the introduction to talk a little bit about dual nationality um, yeah. under the ICSA convention, and then we'll dive in on what the tribunal partially annulled the award on. Um, and it was, re it's really interesting what they found these grounds to be. And I, I it'll be interesting if you're, if you're persuaded um, by the annulment committee's decision. So that'll be our substantive topic today. Great. And then we also have an interview with John Passaro. Uh, interview I mean exchange more with John Pizarro. John, we already had him already on the on the podcast. He's a executive coach. He was previously an arbitration lawyers and he coaches mostly, in fact, arbitration lawyers, but not just. And he's giving us some tips about since we're all about either on holiday or about to head out on holiday to do annual reviews. So we're going to discuss that with him. Mm-hmm. I, I really like this, actually. A bit controversial. I took a few controversial points, but <laughs> um, yeah. I think it was really helpful. Exactly. All yeah. right. Without further ado. Let's roll. All right, let's dive into an annulment case. I don't think we've really handled an annulment case. Um, the only thing we've done is talk about Joel and I's article about the continuing stay of enforcement under exit and non-exit cases. So, I love how you plug that self promotion. That's <laughs> uh, so yeah, no, this is actually going to be exciting. So this is, as I said in the introduction, this is an exit award that was handed down just recently um, between an individual investor, Mr. Kudyan, and his uh, corporate entity, RN Capital, versus uh, Armenia. And the just to give the listeners a bit of background on the underlying arbitration, the um, the claimants alleged that Armenia violated the BIT with the U.S. So the Armenia U.S. BIT by failing to protect them in an elaborate criminal scheme in in Armenia, uh, which resulted in the loss of their investments and a luxury development project in Yerevan. Um, in December 2021, so quite a while ago, um, a tribunal of Melanie Van Leeuwen, Ank Santens, and Zachary Douglas declined jurisdiction over Mr. Kudyan based on exit convention's prohibition against claim by dual nationals, 
against one of their home states after deciding that he held the nationality of the respondent state at the time of his consent to arbitration and of the case's registration. And they further declined jurisdiction over his corporate co-claimant, seeking, seeing insufficient evidence that the entity had any owned assets that could qualify as an investment. Um, so we're really focusing on the nationality of Mr. Kujan, and he held two nationalities at the time. Uh, and that had to do with, it's an interesting um, kind of historical development, but he was a national of both the USSR and the ASSR, which is the Armenian Soviet Socialist Republic, when he emigrated to the US in August 1989. Um, and also um, during, well, that's contentious, during Armenia's declaration of independence in August 1990. So what happened is everyone had a USSR passport when they declared their independence, they got potentially two passports, that's to be debated. Um, so he could potentially have had the dual nationality when he emigrated, dual nationality when he emigrated to the U.S. Mm -hmm. So to remind and review, because some some listeners do like a bit of review, um, the Exit Convention twenty five two A has positive and negative effects for finding jurisdiction for um, individuals or natural persons. So the positive effect is that they have to have a nationality of a state other than the host state or the respondent state. And the negative protection is that they cannot have the nationality of the respondent state. So it's the you have to have and you cannot have the mm -hmm. positive and negative. Um, you also have an exit 25 2B for juridical persons or corporate entities, kind of those same limitations on, on nationality. And that usually has to deal with incorporation or residence of the company. Um, obviously, there's an exception if the investor is required to incorporate in the host state in order to make the investment. So that we'll leave that aside. But this is not, this is an exit issue. So this is not, you can't not find these kind of restrictions in if you bring a case in Uncetral. But the first point of analysis is obviously BIT to see as Lex Specialis to see if they have any provisions on dual nationals. And if they don't, then you have to interpret the lacuna to say, what is the position on uh, dual nationals? So you can either find that they are investors um, or they, or you go into an effective dominant nationality test, or you say they are not investors just by the reason that they have dual nationalities. And then you also look at the timing. So when the investment, so it's when did they have the nationality or when did they have dual nationalities or when did they lose one of the nationalities? So you look at when the investment is made, where, when the breach happened or when the claim is filed, there's kind of varying jurisprudence on what the um, actual timing or the, the focus of the timing should be. Um, so that's the background. And sorry, you. and said that depends on the wording of the BAT, I suppose, right? The, the jurisprudence on the timing yeah it can be um obviously sometimes it'll happen kind of it'll if it links to the definition of investment but um right. we, okay. we obviously it 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 varies between jurisprudence so i think any council can find kind of support for, for anything <laughs> for their position okay. for their position unfortunately yeah um so shortly uh so after this um Arbit the arbitral award was handed down. Mr. Kujan filed for an annulment on 51.2b of the X Convention for a manifest excess of powers. Um, I want to bring up two preliminary issues that came up just because I think they were interesting, but they're not necessarily relevant. Um, as, as I talked about with our article on the continuing stay of enforcement, um, he, Mr. Kujan, the investor, requested a continuation of the stay of enforcement. Armenia said that's fine as long as he puts money into escrow. 
Um, he wanted a condition on the escrow arrangement and the economic committee said that there is no grounds to have a condition. So it was just placed into escrow. And that had to deal with the fact that the investor was, or the Ar- Armenia was awarded costs since they, the tribunal decided that there was no jurisdiction. So they awarded costs to Armenia. So those legal costs were hanging in the balance. And so they wanted those costs in escrow to make sure that he wasn't just running a bad faith claim. Uh, another interesting thing that came up was the fact that right after the right after yeah about two months after the award was rendered in February 2022, Armenia's head of passport and visa department sent a letter to Mr. Kujan's counsel, examining the detail on the legal rules of nationality Armenia and found that he was a foreign citizen of the Republic for the Republic of Armenia, meaning he did not have citizenship of Armenia, which. The investor thought, well, this is a smoking gun. I need to submit this. And the tribunal said, um, sorry, the annulment committee said that the purpose of the annulment committee is to decide whether there was a manifest excess of powers for the record that was presented to the tribunal during the arbitration. So this is new evidence. So we cannot determine whether it's a manifest excess of powers if there was new evidence. Um, They said, although it's, quote, disturbing that an organ of the respondent's state determined that there was a different view than what the respondent state had put in the arbitration, they cannot have this established manifest excess of powers. Mm-hmm. So what does manifest excess of powers mean? Um, it's basically, as it relates to jurisdiction, um, the excess of powers must be established, which would mean um, not only by asserting jurisdiction where none exists, but declining jurisdiction, which it does possess. And then if you look at manifest, it's not to the gravity of the excess, but how readily apparent it is. But the economic committee said, although it is readily apparent, there can be some a little bit of inquiry into the issue to establish whether, whether it's been manifest. Um, so let's go into the facts here. So mm-hmm. at the heart of his case was the allegation that the tribunal had wrongly assumed that he had become a citizen of Armenia at the time of the state's declaration of independence. So as I said, USSR declaration of independence. Now he's basically part of the now he is part of the ASSR. Does that mean he becomes automatically a national of the ASSR? Um, the committee agreed with the starting point of the tribunal's analysis Um regarding his nationality. And they said that there were three affirmations in the case. First, it was common ground, quote, common ground, that the part that Mr. Kujan had been a national of both ASSR and USSR prior to the emigration to the US. Second, it was, quote, common ground between the parties that Mr. Kujan continued to be a national of the ASSR and USSR until at least the Declaration of Independence of the ASSR. Mm-hmm. And the third, affirmation said Mr. Kujan held a USSR passport, which he used when emigrating to the US. Mm. So the committee thought that the first of the affirmations, meaning that he was a national of both, uh, that it was common ground that he, sorry, um, they, they found that the first of the, they saw no basis to question the first of the affirmations. So until he deregistered from his address in Yerevan and surrendered what he described as his internal ASSR passport, he was a citizen of ASSR. Mm-hmm. Um, they also thought the third statement that he held a USSR passport was accurate. But the second statement that it continued to, to be a national was something that demanded closer attention. And they wanted to analyze closer attention to it because it was it represented a critical step in the tribunal's analysis on whether he was a national of Armenia at the relevant dates 
since the tribunal held that because he was a national of ASSR in 1990, this nationality had automatically mutated into citizenship of Armenia. Mm -hmm. Um, The critical step in the analysis was not based on a finding derived from evidence, but just that it was common ground between the parties. So they really wanted to figure out what was this common ground and how did they establish this common ground? Yeah. Um, and so when they were going through the record and the and what the claimant had stated on the record, the claimant had merely stated that the uh, the individual investor was a former citizen of ASSR of Armenian descent and had left for the U.S. And that when he did leave for the U.S., he thought he was giving up everything in Armenia, um, he said. Armenia uh, sought to rely on this Armenian dissent statement, um, but the committee said that this there was nothing on the question about whether he remained a citizen of the ASSR after his emigration to the US. Armenia put forward a legal expert saying he retained both citizenships, um, but the committee nonetheless reckoned that it could not discern in this record it was common ground that the investor remained a citizen after emigrating to the US, at least until the Declaration of Independence. Mm. Um, so they, the tribunal, what the committee was looking at was whether the tribunal had looked into this question enough or whether they just relied on this statement to say that it was common ground. Um, and so they kind of looked through the comp- constitutions of the ASSR and USSR, and they also obviously analyzed um, the expert and uh, factual evidence but they said that they concluded that the tribunal avoided analyzing a critical question and deciding it on the assumption that it was common ground when not in the fact the case is in the opinion committee. Uh, and therefore, it was an excess of power. Um, so they said that whether this was manifest, they said that um, the investor did not discuss this issue of whether he retained his ASSR citizenship and um, it was never put to him during the arbitration on whether he had continued his nationality or continued to retain his ASSR citizenship. Mm-hmm. Um, so they said that this was actually manifest, that this this was not common ground. It wasn't even discussed. Um, it was just that he held both, but not necessarily when, when he gave it up and if he gave it up. Um, yeah, it's, it's pretty rare, right? That we see in Elman decisions that are successful. Absolutely. Especially on this jurisdictional question, which obviously the tribunal felt quite strongly, if they're going to dismiss a whole dismiss a whole case on jurisdiction, that the, the factual record was sufficient enough uh, to determine that he held that nationality. Mm-hmm. But they they basically said that the, the inquiry didn't go far enough. It wasn't put to him as a witness. It wasn't raised by opposing counsel that he didn't continue his nationality. So the question question was and remains like how did they find that it was that it was common ground mm-hmm. um so then they said that obviously you have to look at kind of in the implied standard on um the annulment is whether it would have an effect on the award and obviously they said that if they had looked into it there is a potential that they would have come to a different conclusion because if he had given up his citizenship he wouldn't have been a dual national and then jurisdiction would have been upheld mm-hmm. um so they they yeah they ultimately found that they that he had exceeded his powers, um, and therefore they annulled they partially annulled the award. Um, and I think, and, and another interesting is, is they awarded costs in favor of the investor for the annulment. Oh really? So not only did he 
And yeah, and it was for a few hundred thousand dollars um, because he was fully successful in his application for partial annulment. The committee ordered Armenia to bear the costs of the annulment proceedings in its entirety. It was only a hundred thousand dollars, you said? Uh, a few hundred. So the okay. cost of the annulment proceedings amounted oh, right. to approximately 260. Oh, right. Okay. And I want to also just give a, a thank you to Lisa Bomer and I, a reporter, for helping us through this. We obviously didn't have the, the full okay. decision in front of us, but... Um, I think it was meaty enough that it warranted a discussion. And thanks for bringing it to our attention, Sadia. Um, yeah, absolutely. No, it's 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 great, and it's um, it's how many times have we seen this expression? It's common ground. Yeah. Right, and we just uh, yeah, it's common ground. <laughs> right, and, especially on matters of evidence. I mean, yes. clearly, if there there would be kind of a. a a discussion on this but i i see what they mean that it wasn't content so it's basically on that is they actually looked at um one of the procedural orders when they were analyzing if the question had been put to him what the it had not been put to him then what would the effect of that be and they aligned it to the procedural order that said if you call a witness if you fail to call a witness to a hearing and fail to examine them that does not per se mean that you accept the witness's evidence mm-hmm. um so they kind of took that and said this is this is an example of that that if you're not going to put this question to the witness then the question isn't fully vetted and the tribunal wouldn't have the power to decide on that question very interesting it's very interesting and and was it annulled then partially you said right so it's it was kept on the other um on the other grounds well that was really the only only ground yeah so they didn't um they didn't so the the jurisdictional um award had two parts, one on the individual investor and one on the corporate investor. So this was just on the individual investor. I see, I see. And they actually in the in the pleading of the annulment, when they were in the application for the annulment, they, they, you know, when you seek annulment, you basically take out parts of the award that you say are wrong. So these paragraphs um, should be basically annulled. And they yeah. actually changed, they actually identified the wrong paragraphs in the application, and like amended it to include this part of of the of the award that they wanted to annul so it's good finding by council to to pick that out but mm-hmm. i think you know dual nationals is obviously it it wasn't a huge thing before but now everyone is so international that a lot of people have it i worked on the Mikola romania case dual nationals came up um but obviously they found that he had jurisdiction they went into the dominant and effective nationality discussion there yeah yeah um, so I think it it does come up, but this is, I mean, this is obviously a very fact-intensive, complex issue. I mean, you're talking about secession of states and and what happens yeah. with your nationality when that happens. Um, or like if you, even if you think like Iran, where you, even if you want to give, you can't physically give up your Iranian citizenship. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what does that mean for Iranian nationals as far as jurisdiction? Yeah. 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 No, absolutely. Absolutely. I, th- I thought it was a very interesting example of a successful, you know, annulment on that basis. Yeah. You don't see those all the time. And then Greenwood, I mean, the chair of the tribunal, but all the others scratched, you know, the award of it. Because I have a feeling sometimes the annulment committees don't want to, <laughs> they're very conservative about annulling, annulling awards. And yeah. rightly, rightly so. Rightly so, of course. So yeah, so let's. What do you think is going to happen? Well, I guess they'll resubmit it, right? Um, yeah, and then afterwards, <laughs> about jurisdiction, what's going to happen? 
on this. Well, I th- well they'll obviously submit this letter from the Armenian visa department. Yeah, yeah and- that's the thing. The new evidence will come in now because it wasn't it wasn't used. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, because basically his whole foundation was that when he emigrated to the US, he thought and his intention was to give up everything in Armenia, including yeah. his passport. I, I, they're off, they did go through the constitution between, you know, the constitutional laws at the time and what was the intention on whether you would automatically become mm-hmm. part of the ASSR and then that mutated automatically into Armenian citizenship. Mm-hmm. Um, but clearly from this letter, that's not it's not automatic mm-hmm. um, that you would have to apply. But uh, oddly, I mean, if you think, if you were just a national living in the USSR, then the ASSR, then Armenia, um, you would obviously think that you were an Armenian national. Um, so I, I don't know what the, whether whether your intention or feelings makes you a citizen, but um, I don't, they obviously must issue new passports. I mean, but did he, he never stayed in Armenia, though, after... After it he just, left before the independence, yeah, thing, right? Yeah, so I think that's that's very important. But I mean, amongst other things, amongst other things. <laughs> the question that I had was, do you think? Uh, maybe you don't have to say what you think, but it's we're just we're just for uh, purposes of discussion. For purposes of discussion, um, that the reasoning would have been different had they not put in that evidence um, of that letter, um, uh, you know, because they they, they excluded the evidence from the raising and but it was still there and i because i don't know if that has because uh i i, I don't think it's a open and shut case from that letter i don't think it's a smoking gun mm-hmm. um because we're talking about whether it continued yeah. um and up until what point i mean the letter was issued in 2022 you can argue that that has no bearing on the status of his citizenship mm-hmm. at the time of independence mm-hmm. <laughs> um so i i don't it's it is probative but i don't think it's you know the end all be all yeah okay interesting we'll see we'll have to follow up on yeah see what happens we actually we had a a interview of someone on the podcast was a member of the annulment committee oh who was that i know you were going to ask that and now i'm going to butcher (laughs) it uchiora anwa megbu oh i got that Oh, I can't. I I won't be able to correct you. On this. I hope it's. I hope it's correct. <laughs> yeah. No, he was on the podcast. It's interesting. Uh, Uchera, if we're not pronouncing it correctly. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Well, maybe we can have her on again. At hey, some point hey. Just, or yeah. he? Sorry. Oh my gosh. <laughs> no, good. You defaulted to a woman, though. That's very good. Yeah, I also assume everyone's a woman <laughs> by default. <laughs> that's very good. We should all default to that. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Brian. That was super interesting. Thanks a lot. All right. Let's take a load off and have some happy fun time. Yeah. So as we're all gearing up to go on vacation, maybe you've already been, uh, maybe you're already on holiday. Yeah, we thought it was a good time uh, because it's also the time that some of the firms are doing it is perhaps discuss about doing an annual review. And we have an excellent person to speak to us about annual reviews today. Hi, John. It's great to have you again on the podcast. How are you doing? Hi, Sadia. It's uh, great to be with you. I'm doing really wonderful. It's very nice to be here with you and Brian. 
One of the very few people to be repeat speakers of the podcast. So happy to have you back. It's a, it's a, it's an honor. (laughs) Well, thanks a lot, John, for being here. And uh, for, for those who, who don't remember, uh, Joan, John, Joan, oh my gosh, I really need a break. (laughs) Joan, John, John uh, is a career coach amongst uh, a lot of other things. Um, and John had suggested uh, to, you know, this this topic today. And so I'm just going to give you the floor, John. Why do you think it's an important topic? And what is it that you can share with us about this? Yeah, so, um, you know, as as you may know, most of my clients are lawyers, right? So the topic of annual reviews is obviously something that's floating around at this point in time. And what I was thinking about is how this is often a frustrating process for a lot of people. So it's often a flawed flawed process for a number of reasons, right? Um, First of all, I can remember from my own annual reviews, sometimes it was almost a bit of an afterthought, right? You know, you didn't really have Mm -hmm. enough time to do it. And, you know, for both sides, partner, um, associate, kind of just want to get it done as quickly as possible. Um, And then also sometimes the people that are reviewing you aren't necessarily the best sources of information. So, you know, maybe the person that's actually doing the actual review meeting with you has just kind of collated the information from other people. It's passed through a bunch of different different channels. And so maybe you're not getting the clearest information. And then also... um, it might not be a great source of information because the process can be a bit political as well in the sense that there's a lot riding on it. So people might be worried about um, giving you too glowing of a review if they know they can't promote you or um, or vice versa. So I think there are a lot of reasons. Yeah, I didn't even think that makes sense. (laughs) That does make sense though. So, oh my gosh, now I'm requesting all of my reviews. You're like, oh, was that what it meant? Wow, John. Didn't, didn't mean to make anyone paranoid, but I, but look, I think, you know, depending on different firms, different cultures, different structures, I think there can be a lot of reasons why it might not be kind of uh, the ideal thing. So mm-hmm. I think a useful thing for a lot of people can be considering doing your own annual review. Mm. Your own annual review. And and so that's a great idea. So just kind of a, a check with your own self and, and see what you've been doing uh, in the past year. Is that right? Yeah, exactly. So, you know, the first step would be really so thinking about the, the year going forward, because you can't really do a great interim review unless you have some goals to compare that against. Right. Mm. So the first step would be trying to figure out what your goals are. And so some things to think about are, OK, what are your weak spots? What's some evidence for that? You can figure you can look back, think back to feedback you've gotten from your superiors, your peers, um, also your clients, or even uh, juniors that you are managing. And then also just thinking about what are your inefficiencies in your work? What are the things where you tend to procrastinate or you just notice that you're not getting things done as quickly as you think you should? Uh, Another thing you can think about is what are the differences that you notice between your work and the work of people more senior to you? Um, and then thinking about, well, okay, what are the first small steps to get there? You know, so for example, if you say, okay, I want to, you know, so-and-so does such great opening statements. I'd love to be able to do that. Thinking about, okay, what do you notice? Where, what are the gaps between what you're doing and, and what they're doing? And what are the, the incremental ways to get there? And then also thinking about what is it reasonable for you to aim for over the next year? So, you know, time does pass quickly and and everybody is super busy. So, you know, what are some reasonable goals? And then also being really specific, right? So this is something that I've spoken about recently in uh, a session with a client. Uh, He was pretty down on himself because 
he just he feels like he needs to in order to get promoted to partner needs to be better at a number of things and that was one of the things that that came out in his review the problem is that better is really general right so mm. what do you actually need to do in order to be better what is it specifically that you need to work on and what are the indicators that you're kind of getting there because if you're if you're too vague it's just going to stress you out mm-hmm. and lawyers are not really good at giving you those <laughs> Just that criteria, right? I mean, we in our firm actually have now what they we call a core competencies and, you know, some kind of we have this pre-filled um, annual review with, with categories. So we, we mm-hmm. have semi-objective criteria or boxes to, to look at and to discuss. Mm-hmm. Um, Such and- as what are some examples of that? Oh my gosh, I don't have it under. Well, you know, um, like how, analysis or yeah, and uh, so you have different categories. So I think one of them is, of course, you know, the quality and the excellence, basically, of your uh, technical legal skills, um, drafting, um, you know, analysis, legal analysis, uh, advocacy, if applicable. Um, then you have other things like team management. So, you know, are you good at managing the you know, your your the trainees or the associates under you or above you? Are you good at reporting back? Are you good at uh, client management, client relationship? Mm. There's also stuff about, you know, billing. Are you any good at that? You know, keeping track <laughs> of how efficient you are and all of those things. So at least there's some guidance as to where and what you should evaluate. But to your point, John, um, I think it's really important to have your own set of criteria and objectives, right? To not being only read as, you know, under the grille de lecture of, of your of your firm only, but also as what matters to you. Um, yeah, well, especially when you're thinking about international arbitration, right? Because there are so mm-hmm. many things that are very specific to international arbitration. And if you're working in the context of a big law firm, um, all of these kind of general things that the firm has to come up with that have to be applicable to everyone, you might end up missing some things that are really important to an arbitration practitioner. So that's why I think it can be useful to, yeah, think about doing doing your own kind of evaluation. What would you think, John, as an example, is very uh, specific to arbitration lawyers? Well, so for example, you know, cross-cultural communication, mm-hmm. you know, how, how adept are you at adjusting your approach when you're working with someone from one culture versus another? Um, yeah, that's that's one thing that immediately jumps. To yeah, me. I had I had that in Sweden, working in Sweden actually, was since I just moved from the U.S. and that was like it's such a stark contrast between not only communication style but advocacy style and writing mm-hmm. style. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was something that I had to really take an active approach. And and to your point, it's really difficult to even get that feedback because even if you get a 360 review and you get a four out of five on writing, what what does that even mean to yeah. you? Um, and so the analysis that you can go through is go through old drafts and see the markups and kind of see trends on how they're marking it up. Okay, I see that um, I'm constantly being shortened in my text. Okay, so maybe I can, I don't know if that's concrete enough for you, John, but like that to kind of synthesize my ideas and make them more, you know, shorten my sentences and shorten my paragraph structures, um, because that's what I keep getting expected to write and what I keep getting comments on. Yeah, but I also think what you raise about the what does a four out of five mean is really important because that's especially it's something that I notice living in France because here, you know, so everybody's used to growing up with um, a grading system out of 20, but mm-hmm. nobody ever gets a 20. And so, you know, a really good grade could be considered something like a 15 or something. But the problem is a lot of these rating systems 
were developed in the US where everybody gets an A all the time. And so a yeah. 10 out of 10 is something that's totally normal. And so then you end up in this situation where maybe you're working with uh, one partner who is French, let's say, and another partner who is American, <laughs> and they'd give you two totally different grades, but maybe they think exactly the same thing. Mm-hmm. And so again, that's why I think it's nice to have something where you really sit down with yourself and you have something really um, specific and specific indicators about how you're going to juggle all of this stuff. Yeah, um, that's a super, super good point. It's really true. It really depends who you're sitting with during your evaluation. Um, some people are always like, oh, you're brilliant, you're excellent, which is mm-hmm. also unhelpful in a way, I think. Isn't yeah. it unhelpful? That's what I say also to my uh, colleagues. I'm like, you know, it's not helping unless you really think that person is absolutely perfect, which is never the case, right? Um, you need to focus on what they can, what they should do better or better, not in the sense that there's a defect, but how they can evolve better or get to where they want is it what they want to be become a partner is that the main objective is it you know to get more advocacy skills is it to Mm. to be more visible whatever it is you know it's 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 that and that's what the discussion should be focused about i think Mm. because every every arbitration lawyer is different too you don't need to be necessarily great at everything you know to be an excellent arbitration lawyer some people are really good at advocacy some people don't want it don't yeah. want to do it. And mm-hmm. especially in this country, that's completely acceptable, I would say, because, you know, you can just be the solicitor and not the solicitor advocate right. and work with barristers, <laughs> you know. Um, yeah. And same for BD. I mean, some firms put a really big emphasis on you have to have your own practice, your own clients, you need to bring business. And some other firms, they couldn't care less. Uh, they just, I mean, they couldn't care less. I guess everybody wants someone who brings business, but it, uh, they'd rather you do good work and focus on the existing work probably. Um, mm-hmm. So I think that's very important. Um, you're right. You're right, John. It's a very important exercise to do. And time flies by so fast. Uh, I, I've seen people not make annual reviews <laughs> because they just don't have time or just spend a minute to do it. Yeah. This is yeah, the or, problem. Yeah, or just keep putting them off because they can be a painful process again on both sides. And because it can be so, emotion- so emotionally fraught, right? Some people are really bad at getting feedback. Some are people re- really bad at giving feedback. Yeah. Some people are um, uncomfortable with giving negative feedback. Um, you know, some people are maybe uncomfortable giving positive feedback as well, especially in you know, law firms tend to be perfectionist, right? So if the standard is perfection, it's going to always be really hard to say you're doing a great job because you you can always do more. Mm-hmm. And so that's that's why I think so so getting on to step two is is thinking about okay, now that you've um, set up your goals, well, how are you going to measure them? How are you going to figure out if you're if you're getting there? So what indicators are are you going to use? What are your objective measures of success? So you could think about this in any number of ways and this is going to be specific to different people, but just to give some examples, you know, thinking about, okay, you know, number of comments that are made by people that are reviewing your work, uh, number of comments that you get from clients when you submit drafts for them to check over, um, uh, thinking about the people who you are supervising, how many times did they have to resubmit work to you before it it, it it kind of gets right? Or how many times do they have to come back to you for questions, right? Because those are indications that um, you know, maybe you're not being clear enough with your instructions. Uh, you mm-hmm. know, maybe you need to do something different, give them a little bit more guidance or guide them differently in order to make them work a bit more effectively. Um, and then, you know, other kind of measures of success that are external to you, you know, comments from superiors, 
comments from from colleagues and comments from clients just sort of more generally about you know their relationship with you and, and what they've noticed for you. Um, and then you can even get a little bit more subtle and you can think about you know the nature of interactions with others. You know, what do you notice about do you notice that people are starting to treat you as more of a peer? Uh, do you notice that people are trying to treat you with starting to treat you with more respect? Um, are you know are, are people coming to you with bigger picture questions instead of just technical questions? Those also could be indications that maybe you're moving uh, in the right direction. Um, and then thinking about okay, now that you have these measures of success that you have in your head, how are you going to check your progress along the way? So you know how often are you going to check in with yourself? Is it going to be once a month, once every two months. Again, time always goes by much more quickly than you think. So putting that in your calendar and saying, okay, I'm going to have this check-in with myself. I'm just going to take an hour today to see how I'm tracking on my goals uh, can be really important. Um, I would do that at least, you know, at least once along the way instead of just doing it, it um, annually, you know, do it biannually. Um, and thinking about what milestones you should have achieved by that date. So if you're going to check in monthly, say, okay, by this point, I should have gotten to, to X, X point. Um, and then there's that kind of final annual review, right? So, you know, a year after you set your objectives. So start comparing yourself against your milestones. And then if you didn't reach them, how close did you get? Uh, and and why? So really breaking down what happens, you can figure out for the next year, okay, was it just a matter of the objectives I set were unreasonable? Was it just a uh, big case came out of nowhere and I didn't have time to work on X skill? Or, you know, conversely, some case ended and I thought I was going to have a chance to work on my advocacy skills, but in the end, you know, the hearings didn't happen. So I had to push that back, um, thinking about things like that. And then also soliciting views from others. So maybe you have a mentor and you can ask him or her about that. Uh, you know, could be someone external to your firm. Uh, it could be peers. Again, it could be juniors. You know, how am I doing as a manager? What have you noticed about me? What's been more or less helpful over the past year? Have you? No Here's what I was working on over the past year or six months. Have you noticed a change? Um, and if so, you know, how did that impact your work? I, and then I, sorry to jump in there. I think that's super important because I think when you leave it to these annual reviews, going back to your original point, which is that a lot, a lot gets left and people end up relying on their initial impressions of you and just kind of like confirmation bias on whatever they find because they don't have the energy to yeah. reanalyze your growth to go after a filing or a hearing or something and going to a superior or a peer and saying like, Hey, I've been working on this. Like, what do you think? Or even before that filing say, Hey, I'm going to work on this. Can you just like keep track of that? And I'd like to talk to you after how I'm going. Mm -hmm. um, I think that's, that's really important because then you're really focusing on something concrete and people are actually going to delve into details with you and not just have this broad brush analysis. That's like, yeah, you're doing better in your writing. And then you just feel like, okay, I don't really know what that means or whether I've achieved my goals that I've set for myself. Yeah. Yeah. yeah exactly. Also, like, I feel like uh, sometimes we're just in, firefighting mode like for six months mm -hmm. you know you just have this this opinion to render and then this case and this happens and then everyone's too busy to speak to you or to give you feedback and then when the annual review time comes people tend to kind of of course they look for concrete stuff so they kind of also just maybe perhaps look at the latest performance mm -hmm. that you had uh, yeah, that's a, that's all... a that's a classic annual yeah. review thing, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. So you're like, oh, so last week you made this mistake on your draft, and you're like, exactly. um, okay, what about the other drafts? And you're like, what are you talking about? Which other drafts? You right. know, just because you just don't have that memory. So, which is another reason going in, you know, in the direction that you said, Brian, is it's really important 
when you've once you've done a substantive amount of work to seek mm-hmm. informal or formal feedback at the time and save those emails from clients or whatever it is from your superior or associate, anyone telling you you did a good job or mm-hmm. well done or whatever it is, just save it so you can go back to it and and reassess because we also forget, don't we? Mm-hmm. We forget whether we, we brought satisfaction. Mm-hmm. Um, or not <laughs> or yeah well i think you i think your your point about you know you being in firefighting mode all the time i think that's really true and i think what that means as well is that since change happens gradually and incrementally you can often improve and not really notice along the way and that's why it's great to check in and have these milestones and, and have really concrete ideas about where you were and where you want to get so that you can look back and say oh i actually did really improve my drafting skills and i noticed that because you know xyz so, mm-hmm. But we're so overly critical, though, John. Do you really have people say to you, oh, I've improved my drafting skills? <laughs> but I think, no, but I think because we're overly critical, I think that's why it's important to mm. do this, right? Mm. Because, mm. again, you set these objective things. Instead of just saying, I want to be better, you can always be better. If you say, look, here's what I noticed I do. Here's some uh, you know, things I really want to improve on. And here's what it'll look like when it's improved. That can help quell that critical voice inside of you because you can say, okay, no, look, objectively, you know, I have fewer comments on this kind of thing mm-hmm. from from this person I'm working with, or you know, I've I've noticed uh, an improvement in the clarity of my writing, or I feel more confident when I engage in oral advocacy. Mm-hmm. So that can really be something that you can turn to when you're feeling like you're not doing a good job. You can say, okay, no, look, this is these are things that that I'm definitely improving on, and, and things are moving in the right direction. Also, you can make a chart as how many comments you get back when you submit a draft on Friday versus when you submit a chat <laughs> on a Tuesday or something, you know. <laughs> and uh, you'll see it's it's a pretty interesting exercise from the same person and the same kind of work. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, to, to your point with that, we also, it's the counterpoint to being hypercritical, which is that we also have to be nice to ourselves. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, people do redline for redline's sake, um, especially if it's someone in like the middle chain of hierarchy, they're going to want to show people that they're providing input. Um, so you do have to kind of, yes, take look at those comments that you get, but also realize that, you know, people, everyone's trying to do their job and, and kind of provide their input and show their importance so that, you, you should be kind to yourself and show yourself a bit of grace depending on, you know, give context to your, to your clues. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. A bit more positive, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Cause, cause uh, it's true that people get really worried when they see a lot of red um, and, and sometimes the changes are because you, you know, that the draft was just wrong <laughs> or there was some, you know, really core mistakes, but, Often time, and I would say most, most often, yeah, most, most often in mm. my experience, when, when you redraft, it's because the form and you just want to put your, you know, your, your independent touch to, right. to how you present things, right? It's all about how you present things in arbitration, isn't it? You know, mm-hmm. factually and everything. It's how you, the narration goes. And it's so personal to everyone, mm-hmm. the way you express yourself. Mm-hmm. So. John, do you think, provocative question, that annual reviews should be abolished <laughs> and that we should just have enough time set in our year to have self-reviews instead? No, look, I mean, I think annual reviews are, I mean, they're necessary, right? 
especially in a big law firm context where you do have to compare people. And, and I think they do come from the right place um, because they are done with the intent of helping people to make sure they're improving along the way. Again, I think that oftentimes they can be problematic or less effective than um, they should be because of any number of reasons. Um, you know, it, even just the fact that a lot of times they're developed by HR and, mm-hmm. you know, lawyers being the unique creatures that we are, uh, you know, people in HR have a kind of difficult time kind of understanding the the specificities of of, of what's happening and, um, you know, on the side of the lawyers. But, you know, I think I, I, I think it'd be a little bit unreasonable to say, yeah, we should just abolish annual reviews because, you know, they can be helpful and, and it could be also a useful starting uh, start jumping off point for for yourself review. Yeah, that's true. <clears throat> yes. All right, fine. <laughs> yeah, don't abolish, don't get out of it so easily. Already a lot of people are not doing them when they should. So really, I think it's it's also yet yeah, you you have designated time to kind of you know, really give that time and feedback to to your associates. I mean, in in an ideal world, yes, you would be giving feedback regularly. Mm-hmm. But the reality is you you don't take that time, right? It's good to also have dedicated time and attention just to speak about this um, to your colleagues and associates. And so right. Do you, one question that I have for you, Brian, and also John, uh, if you've seen that, is those 360 degrees, have you, uh, evaluations, have you seen yes. those? Yes. Uh, you have in, mm-hmm. in law firms? Really? Okay. Because yeah, I've, I, done, I've, I've been the subject one. of it for oh, really? five, six years, yeah. No, that's great. So, so they they go all up the chain, right? So they'll go from paralegals, assistants, all the way up to senior partners, and everyone gives their feedback. You have to designate certain people who you worked with over the year. Everyone provides their feedback, which is a one through five kind of answer mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. and ranking. And then, of course, some comments, which are anonymous, um, which you obviously know who's, who makes the comments in the end, but they, <laughs> they're, they're intended to be anonymous. And then it provides this kind of holistic graph and it goes through kind of this semi-objective criteria that you mentioned, Sadia, and it kind of maps your progress. It maps your progress based on last year's progress and kind of shows whether you've um, made any improvement. Um, the But it, it's just, it's all kind of clouded by these kind of biases of people that you actually haven't worked with that much people mm. who you don't work with directly and therefore have no idea what, what work mm. is coming up to you. Um, and also you have kind of your juniors who want to give you good reviews and the seniors who want to keep you working hard. Um, so it ends up kind of falling into the the same, the same patterns um, every year, but with that, and then, and then a partner would go through the, the findings with you and they, t- they tend to kind of explain certain findings and, and where these outliers could be found. Um, but I, I mean, it is useful obviously because it, it is kind of an in-depth exercise and with a Mm -hmm. lot of participants. Mm -hmm. Um, but then again, you have the senior partner who hasn't worked with you that much kind of going over these reviews with you and saying, this is what I see here. And I'm just going to trust this report. Um, and now I'm going to communicate you on what you can do better and give you some tips, but it's all very general. Mm -hmm. Um, so I think that, uh, these, I found more help kind of with the people that did participate in my review and going to them personally and saying, you know, where do you think I fall on this? And like, how could I improve? Yeah, I, th- yeah. I think that's an excellent point, Brian. I think the problems that you raised with the 360s yeah, are problems that I see as well. In the sense that in addition to what you said, you know, you, you talked about juniors that want to give you a glowing review. I, I think it could go beyond that for a lot of people. So for example, I was speaking to um, someone recently who was saying that uh, they were asked to do a 360 for someone who was their manager, who was a very problematic manager. 
Uh, but she said, look, I'm only going to say positive things in the 360 because I don't want to, I don't want to damage your career, mm. but you know, she offered, um, to sort of on the side say, look, here are the things that I think you can improve on. Mm. Uh, and so I think, I think, but that I think highlights one of the problems in, in my own experience doing 360s in the past is that even if you have issues with someone, like I'd be really hesitant to speak about that. And I'm not saying that this is right. I'm not encouraging anyone to do this. I'm just saying that this is the the psychological block that I had was one, um, yeah, worried about the the comments, not worried, worried about it being obvious who the comments came from. And so damaging the relationship, but then also be not wanting to, to torpedo someone's career mm-hmm. because if you have issues with someone, you know, you, who knows how far it could go if you talk about problems. So I think, I think that's, those are the problems with 360s. Mm. So you've never done it, Sadia. You've never had a 360. No, we don't do them at, uh, at the firm. I don't know if it's good or wrong. I don't know. I think it's, it's, um, I, I personally think we should do them. Um, I'd be, I'd be really interested <laughs> and curious, uh, and, uh, to hear um, about, you know, everyone's views. Um, why should it be only one way? I don't understand that. That's very mm. uh, traditional. Also bet- between colleagues, I think it's important as well. You know, I mean, from the same level. Yeah, but um, see, but see, you totally, you totally could kind of do it on your own, right? You know, take yeah. someone out for coffee or take someone out for lunch. Yeah. And yeah. even, even if, you know, maybe they're hesitant to just come up with things spontaneously, say, okay, well, look, here, here are things that I'm working on. Here's yeah. what I'm kind of concerned about. Or, you know, here's, yeah your friction points that I've noticed in our work and here's what I think I could do better to work on that. You know, what do you think? Um, yeah, no, that's a really good point. Very good point. You're right. We should, we should all be doing this. It's, yeah. A lot of food. Uh, it's for very thought. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks a lot, John. That was so helpful and enlightening and it gives us all some homework to do um, at the beach. what a better time to reflect yeah and to to prepare our rentrée like we call it in france and in september or whenever it is that people are going back full full mode full swing yeah well yeah well thank you so much for having me and and definitely thank you to the people who are currently listening to this on the beach with their toes in the sand (laughs) (laughs) exactly exactly people and you can if you want more insight we probably i'm not going to spoil it but we may have john again and even if we don't you can have him directly also and and getting calling him directly i'm sure he'd love to answer your calls absolutely (laughs) thanks thank you bye thank you so much bye